My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. It's summertime, it's hot, so it's time to talk about Kenneth Anger. That's right, we are in burning hell right now, talking about one of the great Satanists of all time, although he claims he was not a Satanist. Really? He was an occultist, he was a pagan. Yeah, there's a term for the kind of religion that Aleister Crowley started, and I believe that he um, said he was part of that group. So listen, I have that term in these notes somewhere. I don't want to say it, though, because maybe the devil will show up. Uh, here are some bullet points for Kenneth Anger, who passed away on May 11th of this year. I'm putting on my $888 Lucifer golden jacket in his memory. Maker of the first narrative queer film in American film history, Fireworks from 1947. The first person to score a movie using only pop music with his Scorpio Rising, which would inspire Martin Scorsese to do the same. Close friend of the likes of Alfred Kinsey, Anais Nin, Tennessee Williams, and the Rolling Stones. The man who inspired Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut to take up a camera, right, Will? That's 100% true fact, isn't it? Well, yeah, it starts to, with his (laughs) self-mythologizing, get a little murky. Uh, But he was the, you know, uh, flim-flam artist, bullshit artist. He is the primary source for some of the most popular and widely debunked gossip about Hollywood's silent era. So let's get uh, this out of the way right away, which is that Kenneth Anger wrote a book called Hollywood Babylon because he needed money. And he just brought together all the photos that he could find, the grosser the better, and every rumor, gossip, and just falsehood that he could about Hollywood. So did Clara Bow, the famous Hollywood it girl, have sex with an entire football team, including... John Wayne. A young John Wayne. D- did she? No. Well... We don't know. Yeah, you know what? L- l- maybe. Uh, she didn't. <laughs> but... but, but... According to him, according to him, she did. Did Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle do what is claimed he did with a glass bottle? Well, that rumor comes from Kenneth Anger. <laughs> really? That rumor never came up at Fatty Arbuckle's trial. That came from Hollywood Babylon. Fatty Arbuckle innocent, Will Sloan yells. I mean, yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, Fatty Arbuckle episode coming soon. Was Walt Disney addicted to opiates, which inspired the character of Goofy? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say yes. I, li- I like if, the idea yeah, of that being true. Walt Disney being addicted to an illicit substance? Mm, yeah, I probably believe that. He spent long hours. So yes, in the 1950s, Kenneth Anger was traveling through Europe. He desperately needed money. Along with a ghostwriter named Elliot Stein, he assembled this book, Hollywood Babylon, which, you know, you can still find today it is probably the most popular book ever written about silent hollywood it keeps being republished like we could just walk into an indigo canada's book chain and just pick one off the shelf for 12 bucks recently of course damien chazelle's hit film babylon uh, not only took its title from the book but also many of the uh, scenes that it dramatizes yeah the uh, false scenes that are featured in kenneth anger's work do you think kenneth anger shot a curse so powerful at damien chazelle that that's what finally it, it backfired yeah, <laughs> put him and under. Killed him. Yeah. We'll be talking about this as we talk about anger more, but, you know, in the late period of his life, he's more defined by kind of the curses. And I mean this in a literal way, not just like yelling at someone, supernatural variety, than he is of making movies. Right. So, I mean, in that opening uh, list of bullet points that I was reciting, the last one is that by all accounts, he was a very unpleasant man, a man who would, yes, put literal curses on his enemies, some of which uh, had a had a habit of... Well, some of his enemies did have a habit of meeting with, you know, untimely and sad ends. Well, we all kind of meet untimely ends in our lives. I guess. I mean, I don't think he actually had the power of the supernatural, mm-hmm. but people always cite that his biographer, Bill Landis, you know, uh, who dropped dead uh, on Christmas Day at the age of 48. I mean, the know? argument would be uh, the rest of Bill Landis's life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, did you ever read the Bill Landis, Kenneth Anger biography? Did it ever get published? Yeah, it was published. I got it at BMV. It's, mm-hmm. I've read parts yeah. of it. It, yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I think Kenneth Anger is most important. I don't just think this. Everyone thinks this as maybe the most important experiment. Well, okay. Listen, ooh, hyperbole. Ooh. People hyperbole. are writing letters right now. Certainly a very consequential experimental filmmaker. Someone who, you know, those movies, I think they hold up pretty well. I think so too. I think that they're not that challenging in terms of like, if I gave someone like a Kenneth Anger experimental short and then like a Stan Brackage one and said, which one do you like enjoy? 
just enjoy, I think they would probably go to Kenneth Anger if they have no experience with the experimental film scene. Well, they're full of surface pleasures. They're full yeah, of visually they're, dazzling. They're full of feeling. And they are certain elements of them remain shocking. But I can't imagine I'm trying to put myself in the headspace of somebody watching fireworks in 1947. These movies, I mean, your hat would be blown off. Your monocle would fall out. Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and Scorpio Rising. These are movies that, I mean, they have entered the visual lexicon. Mm -hmm. You know, Martin Scorsese, David Lynch, John Waters, the Kuchar brothers, Mm -hmm. um, Ray Dennis Steckler. All of these people owe something. I can definitely see it in the Steckler. The other guys, I don't know so much about that. Blue Velvet. You You don't think he got a little bit that from absolutely uh, and they've spoken of it a lot i was being sarcastic oh you're being sarcastic (laughs) i edit out a lot of uh, me correcting will i am sarcasm i am dead fucking serious (laughs) because because this is not a man to joke about Mm -mm, no i mean thankfully he's not around well you know what he could be in this room right now Uh uh-oh but Kenneth Anger, like the films themselves, I very much like. Super enjoyable, fun to watch. I had a, a joy going through these, which I somehow dodged a bullet in a university and had, wasn't forced to watch them. Had you never seen these movies before? I'd seen them all before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you go through the phase of, of like, who's Kenneth Anger? Recognizable Pretty name. colorful, colorful mm. character. And you're like, oh, these movies are pretty quick to Those watch. Those DVDs of his experimental films haunted used uh, DVD bins in Toronto for decades. That's true. You could not like flip through them without huh there's that sphinx with the kenneth anger logo on it but yes once you hit a certain a certain uh, plane of cinephilia mm. you you cannot make it through your life without spending one afternoon watching the complete kenneth anger filmography and kenneth anger's life you know born kenneth wilbur aglemeyer what's that anger is not his real last name <laughs> the first of many falsehoods uh in his life so Anger was, as we've established, a great fount of misinformation, and this extends to his own life story, because as a small child growing up in Santa Monica, California, he loved the movies. He was immersed early in movie culture, claims to have met and danced with Shirley Temple. I don't believe that. I mean, he said that he was a child star as well. And people are like, "Ah, we can't find any evidence of that. Well, so the most important, like one of the, the most important detail of his early biography, which is probably not even true, is that he acted in the 1935 film adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream (laughs) alongside Mickey Rooney. Supposedly, he played the Changeling Prince. Now, this was accepted as fact for decades. But we have that movie now and we can look at it. Well, I mean, Bill Landis in his biography said that he thought that, thought it was him, thought, okay. thought it looked like him. But uh, Mickey Rooney himself said it wasn't him, said that it was actually a child actress named Sheila Brown. I think there's other documentation to suggest that's true. But you I know, mean, who should we believe? The man who lied like 95% of his life or the solid Mickey Rooney who never had any falsehood? I was Milk li- duds. <laughs> I was, uh, I was one for the ICC heads. I was listening to Kenneth Anger's commentary track on on fireworks and at one point he says you can see the scar on my arm here that i got when i was six years old after i had filmed the midsummer night's dream i was so excited i was dancing and Mm. i fell so to the bitter end he was maintaining that he was in a midsummer night's dream i mean you know what i want to give it to him that he was in there because like what will it hurt if it's not him nothing as a young man he befriended curtis harrington another great gay experimental filmmaker oh curtis harrington has been on like the icc list of filmmakers that i want to do forever because he came out of the gate like oh night tide his like mm. val luton inspired even though he claims like i wasn't trying to do that uh, movie with dennis hopper and then he had like a few other films before he just kind of like went into tv movies and he worked for roger corman a bunch too uh redubbing some of those russian films curtis harrington yeah and curtis harrington introduced kenneth anger to the writings of the occult leader alistair crawley yeah and harrington also introduced kenneth anger to the writings of the the, uh, legendary occult leader Alistair Crawley, uh, who I'm not an expert in. No, me neither. Despite but... having, you know, committed myself to Satan, you know, <laughs> it did define his life pretty much from that point on. And we're even skipping over. I went stuff... to Satan one day and I said, I want to be a successful podcaster. <laughs> I want to be a moderately successful and you know podcaster. Who me that's right <laughs> and so kenneth anger as well like stuff that has been documented and is true is that he went to france supposedly under the invite of jean cocteau and because he was a big fan of fireworks which we haven't even talked about like so to experience the work of kenneth anger is to explore the subconscious of american popular culture i mean his films borrow very heavily from the visual culture of 
Hollywood movies, you know, Golden Age, you know, MGM kind of stuff, uh, as well as the sort of 1950s, like, you know, Marlon Brando, James Dean, masculinity. He evidently had a great love-hate relationship with Hollywood and its culture. You can see that in Hollywood Babylon. And among other things, these movies represent kind of early attempts to find and articulate what was left prudently unsaid in Hollywood films. What's fascinating about fireworks is that, as Kenneth Anger said himself, it is the movie that articulates the point of view of like a 17 year oldish boy. And this is the kind of film that like when you're in high school, you're like, I need to make this film to make people understand the way that I feel, but you watch it and understand in the context that it came out of, which was the mid forties and that nobody was doing this. It still remains as powerful as it is. So it came out in 1947. If I had just watched it without knowing anything, I would have said 67. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cause you watch it and go, Oh, it's creating the, kind of storytelling modes that are classic Hollywood and kind of bringing them to the 60s. It's like, no, no, no. It's doing what was popular at that time. Well, just some of the images in it, it's like it's unthinkable that like the same year that like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was being made, that this was also being made. But And for uh, what's Fireworks about? Because it does have a narrative that is understandable when you watch it. So Anger described it as depicting a dream. And by the way, he was 20 years old when he made it. Uh, he claimed he was 17. He was lying. Uh, to make himself seem more of an enfant terrible type. It's 14 minutes. He shot it with a Bell and Howell, a 16 millimeter camera that was a birthday gift from his grandmother. It's, it wasn't his first short film, but it was the first one that still survives. Yeah, all the other ones are lost. And the first one to receive any sort of distribution. And by distribution, that also means obscenity charges that are thrown up against it. And its distributor, I think he was jailed for it as well. His distributor was Raymond Rohauer, who a full 10 years after. Raymond Rohauer, by the way, was the guy who rediscovered all of Buster Keaton's movies. Oh, kind of yeah. Turned yeah. Keaton into a wait a minute isn't he the guy that kind of like said that he owned all of these films that like had fallen to the public domain at one point he was a bit of a wade williams for sure you know definitely a man with a checkered legacy but anyway like a fully a decade after it was made i think he was arrested for obscenity for uh, showing it in los angeles and he was convicted and then that was overturned in a california supreme court ruling which was a landmark because it established that referencing homosexuality in movies is not obscene and at the time of it being made like homosexuality was still illegal Illegal. in america yeah i mean it was 20 years away Mm. from being legal and the thing about this movie too is that like it's a young man who gets assaulted by a bunch of sailors and then he gets ripped open a compass is taken out of his chest so it's in a kind of grainy black and white and i mean it opens it is a dream vision so it opens the first shot of the movie is like a sailor holding a body you know in this dreamy tableau and then it cuts to a young man waking up getting dressed he goes to a bar where he meets a sailor and the sailor is like flexing his muscles you know doing muscle man stuff real uh tom of finland shit but when the boy tries to pick up the sailor uh the sailor attacks him with a whole group of sailors you know beat him blood everywhere ripping open the stomach you know with some like classic butcher shop special effects yep you know and people need to understand who haven't seen this short that it is all shot in classic hollywood style like when you say experimental film you may imagine kind of like you know handheld shaky which would become the defining trait of it when you would get into the 60s but this is all like very well framed well lit well shot and then you see these extreme images within the context of it now some of the other images i mean uh, don't get too body here because i know which one you're going to describe of okay that'll be the second one i described First one. I'm, I'm preparing myself. First one. There's the the boy's body just being covered in milky white liquid. Mm. What could that possibly make you think of? And then the second one, spoiler, folks, if you want to be really shocked, just skip ahead 15 (laughs) seconds. A sailor unzips his fly and reveals a Roman candle that he lights. That's it. That's and that was like the thing that people were like, oh, my God, how dare you? So it made a huge impression on those who saw it in 1947. James Whale saw it, the director of Frankenstein. Alfred Kinsey was at the first screening and apparently well according to according to anger bought a print and Mm. apparently the two of them were lifelong friends after that and jean cocteau wrote kenneth anger a letter and said you should come over to europe oh also stan brackage was an early fan yeah it's a great inspiration for him you know maybe the quintessential american experimental
environmental filmmaker. I got to stop using hyperbole. I keep saying, oh, this is the ultimate. This is the best. This is the most. Well, but, you can uh, only do it if you use it sarcastically, like I do on the Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays, where <laughs> I started off being like the ultimate and of like Bella Lugosi experience. <laughs> and then it's Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. So he moved to France in 1950. Befriended uh, such luminaries as Henri Langlois, who was running the Cinematheque in France. And in fact, it is the Cinematheque where his next movie languished in the vaults for many years, Rabbit's Moon, which is a sort of Commedia dell'arte tableau. Um, Here's the thing about Rabbit's Moon is that it's essentially a Jean Cocteau fan film mm-hmm. where it's like using all the stylistic ticks that Jean Cocteau uses and it, in a kind of style that Kenneth Sanger really wouldn't return to that much once he discovered color and more abstract ideas. And what's kind of revolutionary about it, or at least, you know, when it came out in 1970 or finally escaped, it's all set to pop music. Now, was it originally designed to be set to pop music? Uh, that I don't know. Yeah, or was that something that he did post Scorpio Rising? I definitely think like the juxtaposition of sound and image is very beautiful. Now, if you look at it on YouTube, each version has different music under it. Oh man. Yeah, so it's like what what is real? And I mean, Kenneth Anger was a guy that was famous for re-editing films and then re-releasing them again as well. Yeah, this was shot in the early 1950s and then wasn't actually made available until the 1970s. Mm. By which time he had already revised it you know, a number of times. Also in this period, he made Ode to Artifice, which is this, you know, his most kind of languid and beautiful film, basically just of the waterfalls and fountains of this like 18th century garden. There's also a woman wandering around. And a Vivaldi music playing, Mm. you know, quite beautiful, just, you know, classic (laughs) experimental film stuff. I did see one YouTube essayist say that it's like, this is the kind of movie you do to test out a camera. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, he uh, made Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which great title. I see it all the time if you read about experimental cinema, especially in Toronto. Okay, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, 1953. Anger said of this film, and I quote, I wanted to create a feeling of being carried into a world of wonder, and the use of color and fantasy is progressive. In other words, it expands. It becomes completely subjective, like when people take communion and one sees through their eyes. Now, I don't fully understand what he means about that communion thing. I also quote that at length because, like, you look at this and... Uh, uh, Pretty images. You know, colorful. Okay, the movie is an attempt to visually articulate some of the principles of Telema. I think that's what what it is. I was looking it up right before you said it. Which was Aleister Crowley's religion. Now, folks, please do not expect me to be an expert in Aleister Crowley's religion. What I do know is that this movie, in its 39 minutes, depicts a sort of orgiastic masquerade ceremony. There are various pagan gods who appear as characters, Isis, Osiris, Pan... Um, and it's depicted through a huge range of visual and makeup and lighting effects. You know, lots of optical trickery, strange, uh, colorful, you know, like pastel makeup. Hey, there's Curtis Harrington as the sleepwalker from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Disorienting editing and staging, you know, images layered on top of images. And the intended effect is to create a trance. You know, he wanted the movie to be like casting a spell on the audience. You gotta smoke up, but. Yeah, you can see the influence of this movie on, well, for example, uh, Ray Dennis Steckler's Cynthia the Devil's Doll. (laughs) I keep bringing this up because Steckler means so much to me. Yeah. Even though Kevin Fangers. You want to raise Steckler up as the ultimate uh, experimental American filmmaker. That's right. Kenneth's anger walks so Ray Dennis Steckler (laughs) could run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the metaphor I was going for. I mean, you know, it's a hugely pleasurable movie, inauguration of Mm. of the Pleasure Dome. Perfect movie to, you know, uh, pop your spy brownie and watch <laughs> yep can i tell you what ideas it's articulating no i can't no i can't either yeah. but you know what if i studied it frame by frame and went through the religious text i'm sure i could get much more meaning out of it kind of like when alejandro jodorowsky slowly explains in the commentary track every visual image that is present in the commentary for the holy mountain <laughs> that was 1953 he spent many years in europe as you said before hollywood babylon was this quick attempt to make money yeah originally published in french in 19- 1959, bootleg versions started crossing the Atlantic pretty soon after. It did not receive an official American release until 1974, at which point it was greeted with a lawsuit by Gloria Swanson. Um, <laughs> what okay. does he claim about Gloria Swanson in the book? Probably I, something bad. I can't remember, but uh, Kenneth Anger sent her a foot-long like coffin 
with sugar that says here lies Gloria painted on the lid uh, so I guess that was him putting a curse on her and uh, would you believe it Gloria Swanson is dead now so no Gloria yeah. Swanson wow yeah. is Kenneth it, Anger is it the <laughs> Kenneth Anger curse who knows yeah. I, I have a question about Hollywood Babylon so like every now and then you'll see after Kenneth Anger died and there were some discourses about it sometimes you'll see people be like why would anyone celebrate this book you know the the slander the invective you know like some of the sexist stuff you know the lies that it spread about these stars like it's a disgrace this book and i don't know what do you think of that you know i want to take something like attacked uh, again you know classic sarcastic justin and be like these people are famous and kenneth anger when he wrote this book he was a penniless kid like mm. you know 20 something or maybe a little bit older than that in uh france and he just wanted to make a quick buck that it spread against his will early on i think probably shocked him more than anything else now did he try to make more money on that with hollywood babylon two and they threaten Hollywood Babylon three. Yes. I don't know. I think that what's kind of disturbing about this book is that these lies became the legend that people continue to repeat. Right. And, and pe I, people everywhere think that that, like, if you know one thing about Fatty Arbuckle, it's yeah. that glass bottle thing. Because I want to say, like, I mean, Hollywood Babylon is just trashy fun. But the fact that it's almost like a totemic text is like, oh, yeah, that it's more thorny in that sense. It is thorny, although I'm glad it exists. Yeah, I don't know. Too. It's fun. As long as we all understand that you have to read it with a grain of salt. Yeah, but it took so long for that to become the, the, the case. It's fun to, like, even the new editions look like the old paperback was, like, giant blown up images. And it's just kind of fun to flip through in that trashy kind of way. Anyway, I think you'll agree that he was completely wrong. Hollywood is not a den of vice and depravity. No, absolutely not. They could not be that famous and do such horrible things that he describes in this book because i think we would have heard of it if that was the case so anger returned to the united states and made probably his best known movie scorpio rising so this movie is uh has a couple of different like scenes and tableaus in it it's located at the intersection of gay desire and uh, nazi and sadomasochistic imagery i mean the uh, fun trivia about this film is like the nazi america league tried to sue them for defaming the Nazi flag in the movie. <laughs> So it opens and it's depicted in, you know, beautiful, like rich color. Mm -hmm. It opens with these men, you know, w with some leather dudes, you know, I think coded as, uh, you know, maybe heterosexual, maybe homosexual. I'm not sure. Yeah. And they're just kind of, you know, working on their motorcycle and you see it in uh, vivid detail. Now, the main character is Scorpio. We see him in his bed reading comics uh, surrounded on his wall by pictures of James Dean. And that was just what the actor had in his home. <laughs> like right. this idolization of James Dean, Marlon Brando and the wild one. So there are some shots of the wild one on TV and an early attempt to sort of like queer these extremely ruggedly masculine Hollywood archetypes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Bela Lugosi shows up very briefly on television as well. Most controversially as Scorpio is like dressing up in his leather to go out and, you know, do his motorcycle stuff. Anger keeps cutting back and forth between him and like, you know, old stock footage of like a Jesus movie. Yeah, that Anger said that he just randomly received and he's like, oh, this TV uh, show that features all of this, you know, Bible related imagery. Let's just intercut it between both of them. People were like, oh my God, this is so controversial. As if to say that Jesus is a kind of like gay leather mm. daddy, you know? And it can't be minimized of like how impactful this thing was well first of all the wall-to-wall -wall pop music soundtrack of elvis presley ray charles ricky nelson as well as you know bobby vinton's blue velvet blue velvet wah, wah, wah. this is something that's been like so integrated into culture now but it, it was unheard of and it was the direct inspiration for mean streets i wonder like who would have done it if not kenneth Anger? it's an impossible question to answer but kind of putting these strong images that are then contrasted with music that you wouldn't associate with it like it's it's linked so close to kenneth anger but it feels something that well someone would have done it eventually right i think one of the reasons why these movies still have an impact is because there is this queasy feeling you get watching them there's a juxtaposition of like sometimes the images are very intense and violent and ugly but they're rendered in this like lush beautiful yeah, classic hollywood style mgm way also with this like very dreamy like pop music 
that um, contrast, you know, the beauty and the horror, and, and there not being a very clear delineation on where the beauty ends and the horror begins. The horror is constantly inside the beauty and vice versa. I mean, that's that's pure Lynch Do you as think well. there's a lot of horror in Scorpion Rising, even though Kenneth Anger is like a death mirror held up to American culture? I, I mean, I think there is, you know, some of the, the scenes towards the end, yeah, like the Nazi, a little bit violent, the yeah. Nazi biker guys, but, but like also he, Anger regards that stuff as erotic too, so mm-hmm. it's not it's not one that's what thing. i mean is yeah. that like it's both at the same time is that you know you describe this image and you'd be like oh no yeah that is evil but anger is getting a thrill from presenting it in this way as well and another reason why the movies still have a sort of charge to them and still have a sort of disquieting power i think is because kenneth anger refused to become domesticated in his own life you know he never became a sort of like cuddly elder statesman of american culture he was a little bit later in his years we see interviews with him and he's kind of pleasant and I mean, he did give some interviews. He did those DVD commentaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, he all the public stuff. He alienated everyone. He was the Jean de Godard of the American experimental scene. Yeah, and like all the like satanic adjacent stuff. Like... Yeah, well, that follows Scorpio Rising, where you get stuff like Invocation of My Demon Brother, which is like him going all out and making his uh, Satanist short film. I'm a fan of Custom Car Commandos from 1965. It's only about four minutes long. It's just like, you know, hot dude like polishing his, his car. car yeah but shot on like an mgm musical style set and later when wakefield pool made take one and had the scene of the sex scene of the guy like sticking his dick in a car exhaust oh, pop. making text what was already subtext in this short i mean yeah I, again, Go to the next level kenneth anger just laying the groundwork for later innovations what do you think of something like lucifer rising from 1972 it's a little long yeah i mean it's, it's i agree it has moments of beauty it tests my patience a little bit uh, it's interesting approach it knowing that Kenneth Anger was trying to kind of make something more positive is the way that he's described well, it. Well, it's more about rebirth than death, mm-hmm. famously. And that it did, still has that lush style. It's more of a throwback to inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, where it's kind of like all these, you know, representations of the text that he's reading in these kind of, you know, beautiful, surrealistic tableaus. I personally vibe with some of his stuff about like, Hollywood aesthetics and you know you think uh, he's getting too far away from that well in I, I think I personally vibe less with the spiritual mm, yeah, dimension uh, than than some of the other stuff like something like inauguration of the pleasure dome I think I appreciate it entirely on a surface level mm-hmm. I love it as just like colors and weird makeup and uh, fun effects but in something like fireworks or Scorpio rising the kind of like repressed desire that translates into violence in those movies uh, I find so sort of viscerally moving in a way that I don't find inauguration of the, the inauguration of the pleasure dome is purely a sensory experience mm. for me. That's just me though. I'm sure others would feel otherwise. So you prefer the kind of contrast to the classical mode of filmmaking with these kind of like, you know, extreme ideas and feelings he brings into it more to the detached Lucifer rising where it's like he's creating up his own language. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do, I do like Lucifer rising. No, basically. Yeah. It's got you a can lot appreciate of, it. Yeah. It's got a lot of cool stuff in it. Kenneth Angers is a very easy filmography to tackle. Yeah. Nine movies, that Magic Lantern cycle. You can spend an afternoon on it. As we've established, the influence is in much greater proportion to the actual collected runtime of his work. Which I think is something that he struggled with for most of his career, is that like after Lucifer Rising, he doesn't really have anything major of note. I know that he returned in sort of the 90s and 2000s to making experimental short films again, which were sort of not retreading, but returning to some of those, some of those spiritual themes that he'd been developing. No, thank you. And by all accounts, those movies are, maybe they're interesting if you're a great fan. Nobody stays on the cutting edge of the zeitgeist forever. No, you can't. He's been making movies since the late 40s. Like the fact that he was able to still stay in the conversation up until like the early 70s, that's a longer run than like any experimental filmmaker, basically. But I do think like one of his greatest achievements, weirdly, was just like, the way he lived his life like like one of his greatest like an art- asshole yeah like one of his greatest <laughs> but he knew all the famous people too like the yeah. rolling stones uh jimmy page one of the greatest yeah his his greatest artistic achievements was re- retaining until his dying day this sense of like fear and mystery and mystique around him that also translated to the way that we receive his movies like i think that rubs off on the movies mm-hmm. they the, the fact that the movies are capable of such great beauty and great feeling and also like such horrible violence then when you know what kenneth anger was like yeah um, it all adds to the experience <laughs> they feel dangerous and you know he can go 
knowing that he will always be on that experimental film 101 curriculum. And he's being um, tortured by Satan right now, <laughs> and I'm sure he's loving it. Isn't he just sitting on the left side of Satan, laughing all the way? Maybe he's in heaven now, because that's Oh, that'd be real... his true hell. Yeah. Now, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters on pointcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter... That's importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com, in case Justin said that too quickly. Yeah, I do it quickly, because then it gets subconsciously into the psyche Ooh. of the people listening. Then they have to write us in. Hey, on that note, uh, also give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes, uh, review us, rate us. It helps with the algorithms. It does. All the other movie podcasts we're fighting tooth and nail with, like film spotting, uh, a blank check, blank check uh, sleazoids. Yes. Yeah. Uh, pure cinema. We're gonna, we can accept that. Pure cinema. Sleazoids, we're going to take you fuckers down. <laughs> you need to get on the Chapel Trap House. That's what really gave them that boost, man. I mean, <laughs> by the way, I was just on sleazoids last week. So <laughs> so obviously I'm doing a bad job taking them down. Uh, yeah, you're trying to like sabotage their episodes? Yeah, I'm going to destroy Wait, them from the do, inside. Like, Ed Wood movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like a, like a slam dunk at a knee-high basket. For me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like talking about things i'm good at talking about um but yeah i'm kidding we love all those podcasts Apple they're all our friends <laughs> film spotting's spotting. my friend <laughs> yeah blank check who every time i listen to it by the end i'm like these guys make so much money doing this like good for them Fuck. if anything uh the, the co-host david sims he should retire and give you the atlantic critic job right will yes you shouldn't have both that's such a good idea justin yeah <laughs> all right so our first letter is from enrico and it goes hey justin and will i have a question about adult cinema Oh, we love this. And this is what caused people to call us the porn podcast. Which we don't. Listen, we don't talk about porn that much. No, we don't. More people should talk about it because we know what you do every you, day, you, listener. You fuckers are watching a lot more porn than we are. Admit it to yourselves. Admit it to yourselves. <laughs> Earlier this year, partly inspired by your occasional episodes on porno tours. Occasional. Mm -hmm. That's important. So should we double down? Like you just take the label and you run with it? Yeah, maybe we should. Maybe we should do it every other week. Partly by your recommendation of the Rialto report podcast oh now that's a movie podcast we can't measure up to that at any point i have watched 20 or so more or less essential films from the genre's golden age are you happy that you've done this to listeners uh will yes i am uh, it blows my mind every second week will's like i wanted to make sean costello a star and i couldn't do it we tried <laughs> but i don't feel like it took the letter continues i love the experience and one of the things i most enjoyed was getting he's to just know all out of cum now <laughs> i was getting to know the whole new world of actors bobby astor george payne oh man george payne makes some rough ones and annette haven may be my favorites so my question is you've taken a strictly auteurist approach to adult cinema so far but would you ever consider an episode on one of the actors of the golden age if not why if yes who would it be i guess uh, Jamie Gillis or John Holmes might be the obvious choice. Well, he said Jamie Gillis. That's the first one that came to mind. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Gillis obviously has like the best filmography of them all. He's the one who is universally accepted as the best actor. Uh, he's also, I mean, he created the gonzo genre with On the Prowl and seems to have had a very strange and colorful personal life as well. So in him, there's a great deal to talk about. And uh, I don't know, other actors, I mean... The ones who tend to be particularly interesting are the ones who kind of took control of their careers in some way, like Annie Sprinkle or Marilyn Chambers started their own companies and produced their movies. I think it's difficult to talk about porn actors in the same way that it can be difficult to talk about mainstream actors just because they're not the authors of their own career. And like actors serve other people's visions a lot of the time rather than creating their own. I mean, obviously, there are a million exceptions to this. Like yeah. Tom Cruise is the author of his own career. But, you know, many actors, most actors like do do the work for hire. And it's tough in pornography, too, is that, you know, they come in, they shoot for a couple days, then they're done. An argument could be made that maybe if the actor was very powerful that they did define that presence and just the director in a porn film you know unless you're talking about like Gerard Damiano is more of you know a TV journeyman style director it's like let's get it let's get out also do you really want us like uh, talking for 30 minutes about how somebody uh, did the sex real good in a movie <laughs> do you really want that I think that what we, the way we would approach it was like thematically can we find a theme behind all of these movies I think at one point 
you were like, hey, Justin, what if we did an episode on Tracy Lords? Is there something there? And I was like, oh, that's some uh, tricky territory. So, I mean, we obviously wouldn't be talking about her porn movies. Well, yeah, we legally can't. Legally can't. But it's just like, I don't know, Tracy Lords, this is sort of interesting career for someone who like, at least for a long time, had the most crossover success. Mm. I suggested her mostly or mentioned her name mostly just because she, for many years, had the most significant crossover career yeah. of anyone. Jim Wynorski's not of this earth. I, I know. And, uh, you know, such such classics as Skinner and uh, oh, that's right. Ice. Did she do a bunch of Gregory Dark movies? Or am I thinking? I mean, she was in New Wave Hookers, which is technically an illegal movie, isn't that, it? That's right. Well, there's a version of New Wave Hookers you can watch that has her cut out of it. Okay. And if people don't know, Tracy Lords was underage her entire right. porn career, except for the last movie that she did. Right. So I don't know, like, I guess I was a little interested in maybe like examining, like, how does somebody become a transitional figure? Because I'm sure like all of those movies in some way play on her image as like mm. a sex symbol. But um, yeah, I don't know, like probably not. There aren't a lot of great movies there. No, I'm sure maybe we look at this probably like a hundred like Cinemax, like neo-noirs or erotic thrillers in there, I bet. But yeah, I mean, like I say, uh, the reason we haven't done and a lot of actors from that genre is the same reason we haven't done a lot of episodes on actors in general. Mm -hmm. It's uh, tough to talk about. It's tough to talk about. Thank you very much but for I that do, I do think we do perhaps have too much of an auteurist focus on this podcast. It, I, it, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, people always accuse us of having an auteurist focus, but I don't know what will we discuss if we do not pick that as a point of interest right i mean that is kind of our way of looking at things isn't it but like w what will we talk about if we talk about like a movie or i mean we did an episode on tracking shots once yeah that's true but i think we probably spoke about the directors who helm those tracking shots more than anything else i mean let's face it when you're talking about art you're talking about artists <laughs> you have to right yeah. that like uh if you want to hear us talk about more movies in general listen to our patreon episodes because we often do just a movie and then we'll focus a lot on an actor when we talk about a movie for example someone like the true auteurs director mike myers yeah so uh yeah every now and then we'll do an actor and every time me and will when we sit down to record we're covered in sweat and we're like we're gonna be able to get through this we're gonna have enough to say now and i want this letter writer to write in and say which of those porn stars do you like the most for in entirely prurient reasons no don't do not that, write that email. don't give me that bobby Astor shit will don't does not look at these emails yeah. <laughs> you know george payne I feel like there would be a lot to talk about, especially the kind of uh, version of pornography that he acted in. Well, what's interesting about George Payne is he was—he actually did both straight and gay porn. And he was a good actor, too. He was a good actor, yeah. Because uh, didn't he do those Avon movies? He, he, was, he did The Taming of Rebecca, gave a monstrous performance mm. in that film. <laughs> oh, wait, was he? No, he's not in uh, the Sean Costello movie. Is he a uh, forced entry? Uh, that was Harry Reams. Oh, Harry Reams, yeah. The other good actor who, mm. did he ever have a crossover career? He was supposed to play the Sid Caesar role in Greece, but That's uh, he, right. got, he was fired. Uh, but I believe he was in maybe one or two mainstream movies, you know. I feel like we could talk about Harry Reams as well, because he had a uh, come to Jesus moment, didn't he? That's right. And then he came back because, you know, there's no money in that at a certain point. Our next letter is from Connor, and this one's specifically for Will. And it goes, thanks first and foremost for the great podcasting. Learning more about people like Crash Gorgon and Godfrey Ho makes me better, more well-rounded person. And I hit up parties, I'm sure. I'm writing in because Will recently mentioned his emerging interest in old-time radio. In addition to Turner Classic Movies canon, my dad introduced me to this world when I was a kid. On camping trips, we'd load up an MP3 player with classic episodes. This makes me feel 100 years old being like, we'd load up an MP3 player like well you didn't take burn the cds with you what about tapes yeah you remember tapes i remember my dad used to do that when we go on road trips he would have like george carlin any comedy that like he could just download on napster he would burn them onto one cd and we just listen to it over and over and over again in the car the letter continues on camping trips we'd listen to such things as suspense or quiet please to be thrilled and chilled by the campfire or to laugh at weird inscrutable seven-year-old jokes like fibber mcgee and molly's overflowing closet or jack benny's friendly rivalry with Fred Allen. I'd like to formally request an episode on some of these radio stars' ventures into movies. Jack Benny into Be or Not to Be, George Burns' Second Life on the Big Screen in the 70s are probably the most obvious examples, but I'm sure there are a million more far less successful stories out there worth talking about. Keep up the great work, boys. Connor. I mean, if we were doing an episode on old-time radio stars and movies, I would actually be more interested in talking about, like, 
the movies that were like, you know, like shit, basically. Like just the, the be- ones that were kind of like transferred from the radio yeah. to the screen and Ca- failed. Capitalized on them directly. Like Jack Benny had a whole string of vehicles in the 30s and 40s that nobody watches today because they're just not like that feud you mentioned, the Jack Benny Fred Allen feud, inspired a movie called Love Thy Neighbor that starred the two of them, you know, having their feud on the big screen. And it's bad. <laughs> and there's, there's Buck Benny Rides Again, which is a Western spoof with him and his whole radio cast also bad well we've threatened uh an episode on ventriloquist for the longest time especially you know the most famous uh radio ventriloquist well there's there is a movie from the 30s called charlie mccarthy detective that's right which, uh okay Wait. let's do this episode soon <laughs> i actually really want to do this ventriloquist <laughs> what else i think the problem is it's funny we laugh about it we go charlie mccarthy and we're like oh what else would we do well we would do um stop look and laugh mm-hmm. with mortimer snurd yep wait what is the one that it's like a ventriloquist and it's mostly made up of like stock footage and shorts that he just kind of narrates oh uh was that a movie that i saw at the nitrate film festival last year it was something Um, like that yeah yeah, maybe maybe okay that's something to look into but then would we would we venture into movies that are more like about ventriloquism like magic with anthony Hopkins? yeah probably we'd have to do that i would rather i would rather do an episode that's about like ventriloquist comedians yeah me too like the actors doing ventriloquism we could do one on if not just i like calling it ventriloquist but like people that have one weird talent and they or one thing that they did and then they get a movie out of it the first one that pops up to mind is William Hung, the classic American Idol uh, shebang singer who got an entire Hong Kong film. So that just he starred in and it was about him. OK, I, I feel an episode brewing. This this could potentially be really good. Oh, and by that, you mean painful for us. By the way, the movie that I'm thinking of is uh, Trail of the Hawk, which was an Edward Dimitrik movie that was later. Ah, yes. My favorite rat filmmaker, Edward Dimitrik. Later edited into a vehicle like with with this like ventriloquist country singer named tommy scott um so <laughs> wait was that uh directed pre or post him uh, ratting out all of his friends for the blacklist uh it, well the original film was 1935 okay so the, way the before yeah. version was later yeah i mean i feel like we could do a jack ben- i know nothing about jack benny <laughs> like i'm sure will could speak to that a lot because that's I, all he consumes now i love i love jack benny yeah like, we, we could potentially do a jack benny I, but i would actually like to do i like the idea of like a golden age of radio yeah, like, yeah episode and, and like pick pick movies that like aren't good <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah well next week it's summer the sun is blaring down we want to get into the air conditioning with a big tub of popcorn and experience summer blockbusters so we're gonna turn to the biggest summer blockbuster filmmaker of them all the man who directed anonymous that's the name of the movie right oh that one about shakespeare, shakespeare. yeah <laughs> roland emmerich that's right roland emmerich director of independence day of godzilla of stargate oh, i am not watching godzilla again. i don't want to watch refuse. i don't want to watch that again either but we're gonna watch independence day mm-hmm. uh day after tomorrow i think we should watch some of his weird early german films when he was doing like steven spielberg ripoffs uh, oh, oh whole... like he stopped doing that <laughs> yeah, that's right uh i have a soft spot for white house down i think that's the better of the two white house invasion movies Okay. And uh, Independence Day 2 Resurgence. Remember that one? What about his Stonewall movie? Can you imagine? Oh, all right. Let's do it. We're getting into Roland Emmerich. That's who we're talking about next week. Wait, wasn't Roland Emmerich uh, caught in that like Brian Singer stuff that was going around too? I believe, I believe Roland Emmerich was at some of the pool parties. Yeah. Maybe even organized some of them. Uh-oh. Well, we'll talk about that next well, week. Well, I, I mean, I'll, we'll have to separate the artist from the art here <laughs> because these movies are simply too good to avoid. I may have seen Independence Day a hundred times when I was a child because I had it on VHS on my dad's house. I also had it on VHS. I also watched it a lot. Mm. And uh, ta- I've not revisited it since. Yep. So I'm yeah, I'm excited. Roland Emmerich. So uh, that's what we're doing next week. And on the Patreon, speaking of summer movies, listen, we're the guys who have our finger on the pulse of upcoming entertainment. So on the Patreon this week, we're talking about summer movies blockbusters all the big ones Blockb- this year specifically yeah. we are giving you the summer movie oh. preview you remember folks you remember entertainment weekly it would have a summer movie preview well fuck entertainment weekly because we're doing it now now we are showing you but you can only listen to it if you're a patron at uh patreon.com slash the important cinema club so until next week my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening
Well, before we started recording, I was terrifying Justin with a screen grab I took of uh, what Terry Gilliam looks like today. Mm. Uh, I was watching an interview with him in The Hollywood Reporter, you know, because I'm always... If Terry Gilliam shows up on the feed, I'll see what he's up to. I can't think of a filmmaker I loved more when I was a teenager that I have absolutely no interest in anymore to this day. Even his older films. Like Brazil, I'm like, ugh. I did see it a million times, but like, you think I want to watch it again. And it's like, uh, his legacy now is kind of tainted by that. By like his comments, the yeah, things he comments. said. You Not even like Time Bandits? Uh, it was never a classic for me when I was a kid. And I remember when I came to it, I think I came to it a little bit late. I can appreciate its style. But I, you know, I was a Brazil guy. Uh, Brazil. I didn't really like the Fisher King. How about Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is yeah, great, really Love watching fun. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Brothers Grimm, of course. Right. Remember that like that run where there were so many Terry Gilliam films coming out like in the theater, like one after the other. I saw a ton I saw of ter- them all. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't I didn't see Thailand in a theater. No, I did not either. <laughs> And, but I saw, yeah, I saw Brothers Grimm at my local multiplex. I Me mean, too. Could, could you imagine such a thing, a Gilliam movie at the multiplex? Did I go with, a, I must have gone by myself at that point. I have to check the years, but like I did see it because I remember reading like weekly news about Terry Gilliam updates on websites, like excited for the next one. Well, the Brothers Grimm era was kind of like the last or one of the last great gasps of him as like a real mainstream figure because like that was a summer blockbuster type movie or was supposed to be but then also like he left the editing to go make his personal movie Tideland mm-hmm. you know he was gonna stick it to the Weinsteins with like oh, this little this personal movie you know there's a documentary on that Tideland DVD directed by Vincenzo Natale it's okay. It's okay. But is Thailand the one where he's like going around trying to give tickets to people and it's like so sad? Yeah. Well, he, when it was, came out, he like showed up in line at the Daily Show mm-hmm. and did like a publicity stunt there. Okay. Here's the thing about Terry Gilliam. Man has not had an idea in 40 years. Yeah. And, and I agree. Whenever I see an interview with him now, he's so full of himself. He's uh, so like, yeah. so like, oh, you people, people uh, are so afraid to open their minds and, uh, and, and, and let their imagination roam wild like that's the kind of like the you know tony Strikes. i thought you were gonna be like they give everything to black lesbians and yeah he says a lot of that too he says that too uh because because people are blinded by the woke ideology and they can't oh, open their God. minds you know that that kind of stuff the man who killed don quixote came out you watch it and it's like this is the movie you spent 30 years trying to make it's just the fisher king again <laughs> yeah it's the exact same <laughs> thing i mean maybe the version that he would have done with uh Johnny depp would have been much grander it would have been, been a better. theatrical film. actually yeah, it would have been better because it was 20 years earlier and back when he could still knew how to compose an image. Yeah, when he was doing um, the original Don Quixote, did that follow the Brothers Grimm? I think it did, right? I think it was before, actually. Oh, it was after before. Fear and Loathing. It was like 2000 oh. era. Oh, what would that movie have been? What Fear we- and Loathing is a movie that I remember, it's a push-pull film with me, but watching it now, I'm like, okay, but I understand what he's trying to do. That like the film becomes miserable by the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't enjoy that movie, but yeah. it certainly has some muscular filmmaking compared to what came after there's some ideas in it that are executed in a way that's genuinely interesting i think the reason we brought this up though two things in the interview that i saw with him he didn't have his front teeth anymore <laughs> that's really what will wanted to show me that he didn't have his front teeth what happened to terry gilliam's front teeth we all get old it like, happens right they fall out like i, I remember so. going to the dentist in the 20s they're like you gotta floss every day or you, you'll lose your teeth by the time you're 50 and i was like i'm never gonna be 50 <laughs> and the other thing is i think you would agree that terry gilliam as a brand has declined yes this is the question i was asking which is like where are the terry gilliam fans because when when we were younger when we were like you know teenagers online the the sort of people who were like gen x movie buffs fucking loved terry gilliam we could not talk enough about him yeah he was the guy he was that that guy who was sticking it to the studio heads was it because there was that like myth of like you know the filmmaker that the thwarted artist yes exactly and the mad genius and that defined everything that he did whether it be like uh, Brazil and the Love Conquers All cut the problem the guy was Baron Munchausen 12 Monkeys was pretty smooth but there was that great documentary that was on the DVD the hamster factor but also Lost in La Mancha like the fact that the Don Quixote movie fell apart so he had this the the image of being this like thwarted genius his standing certainly and in a lot of places has fallen just because he has it's been a long time since he's made a movie that's been critically or commercially successful and yet you and i 
we keep an eye on what's coming out on Blu-ray, mm. the 4K releases. And it's nothing but Terry Gilliam movies. People who buy physical media love Terry Gilliam. Is it because it's Gen Xers yes. and older? Yeah, I was going to say, is it people our age that just don't have that disconnect with him, that they didn't follow him like we did, so they have all these fond memories of the films like Brazil and Baron Munchausen, which I have vivid memories of. These films were very difficult to get on DVD for the longest time. I remember when the two-disc Baron Munchausen edition came, it's like, finally, it's here. You can watch it the way it was meant to be watched. Like, are there other filmmakers like that, that like we've kind of disconnected from them, but they continue to have that like life and fame behind well, it's, them? It's just interesting because it seems like a, a generational divide. Mm-hmm. And are young people into Terry Gilliam? I don't That's think they the are. I never see anyone talk about Terry Gilliam anymore. Okay. Certainly no one our age or younger. Mm-hmm. I don't see people like really talking about those movies that much but obviously older like the people who used to write for ain't it cool news and read that like they still love terry gilliam. and they're buying those blu-rays when they come out like I i'm trying so. to think of those filmmakers terry gilliam darren aronofsky was one of those guys that i don't think he has that fan base anymore uh, i mean sam raimi was in that category. yeah i think he still has a, a fan base as well that people like enjoy his movies talk about them and it gets you know passed around there isn't that like like i look at brazil and it feels like such a pure film to me but it's like it, it's tough to go home again i guess i feel like this is what we discussed in our Terry Gilliam episode as well. So if you watched Brazil right now, would it just like... I would love it. I'm yeah, sure I would okay. love it. But I just have no interest to go back to it, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. it's. I think all the elements together, like... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I should watch. I don't think I'd watch it in a decade after, like, it was one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't think I would have any trouble watching those movies and, like, keeping Terry Gilliam's recent no, no, no. comments. I, I would not mind. have any problems uh, doing that at all. But his his filmography has become devalued to me because I think, frankly, after 12 Monkeys, it's like you realize you've had the limit. You've hit the limit of what he has to say. Mm. Like, he has no more new ideas visually. You don't either. think the Z- Zero Theorem took him to the next level? Yeah, I mean, Ugh. you look, you look a at. Movie that barely exists you look at the zero theorem and like his vision of a future dystopia might as well be you know from 30 years earlier mm-hmm. it's just like the same same, same thing, thing over yeah. and over again yeah that's that that's the category of director who i find very sad those ones who like you know the woody allen types who like yeah. don't have anything more to say you know what i would say is the thing that hurt terry Gilliam the most his movies stop being funny yes and i think that's one of the big issues with his late period filmography Did, were the early ones funny brazil's really funny like okay. Brazil has like a million gags. I don't know if Baron Munchausen is funny. It's funny in that 1941 way because where it's like excess. I'm just saying secretly he's the least funny of the pythons. I don't think anyone would deny that. Yeah. Well, because like the cartoons are are fun, but it's yeah. like he's he has a very one note like mm. loud mugging sense of humor. All right. You, uh, dear listener, you've reached the end of the podcast. So we can finally talk about the Woodman's new trailer. Oh, coup de chance. Yeah. yeah did you see the trailer? I did. I can't it wait. It looks bad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it looks exactly exactly what I think it's it going to look that, like. It, uh, you know, I'm tired of Vittorio Storaro shooting his movies. Is he still shooting it? Yeah, it's got the st- unmistakable Storaro okay. sheen. You didn't see Rifkin's Festival, so you don't know that look. No, I'm, I'm a <laughs> good man. <laughs> I haven't seen Rifkin's Festival. Wait, did you see that Adam Rifkin uh, Blu-ray that came out? It's called Adam Rifkin's Festival. The one that Vinegar Syndrome put You know what? That name recognition, it's there. Yeah, people people love Rifkin. So I'm sure that you will probably see this Woody Allen film where it just escapes to the internet one day. The, the second it becomes available, I'll watch it. I can't <laughs> wait. Yeah. Uh, didn't, isn't there like people like, oh, this is a good one. And it's like, mm, all right, I'll believe it I'll when believe I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah.